Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. That's a good group of kids going out the door, isn't it? Church family, it's good to see you. I'm so thankful to be with you today. I'm thankful for the great privilege to, to shepherd Seneca Baptist Church and to get to preach God's Word today. Um, as we come into this moment, this most holy moment of opening God's Word, hey Jack, I like your crown, buddy. I'm not sure who gave it to you, but it's nice. The girl's in front of you, okay. That, that was like, you know, squirrel, you know, one of those things. Um, as we come into this most holy moment, uh, maybe you've come into this moment with a burden. And uh, I, I want us to just have a moment or an opportunity to lay that burden down before the Lord. And so if, if you've come in today and there's something overwhelming you, something on your heart, something too big for you to handle... Maybe you just want to signify that to the Lord today. You don't have to shout it out or anything, but if you've got a burden in your life and you just want to throw a hand up and say, Pastor, I know you're about to pray. Would you just pray for my burden today? You just want to slide your hand up and, and signify that before the Lord, and then we can lay that back down. I see a bunch of hands going up. Okay, you know what it is, and God does too, and He cares so much about your burden. So let's pray. Father, thankful, so thankful of the words of the song that we just sang, whatever may pass and whatever lies before me. Father, that you are entirely aware, entirely aware, there is not a single thing, a single thing that is going on in our lives that you are, are not intimately involved in. And Father, the truth of the story is that you're probably doing 10,000 things in our lives and we're only aware of maybe like two of them. And I'm just grateful for you. I'm grateful today that no matter how big our burden, your shoulders don't get weak. Your strength is not spent on our burdens. And no matter how small or insignificant it seems, no burden that we carry is too insignificant for our great King and Father to care about. And so this morning we come and we lay our burdens down. And as I was sitting in my seat, the simple prayer of, I willingly surrender all that I am today to you, King Jesus. That I might be emptied of self and filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, Father, as we hear your word, may it be swift today to go from our ear to our heart, from our heart to our lips, from our lips into conversations. And may we leave this place encouraged and transformed because your word is powerful. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Grab your Bible, go to Exodus 24. Exodus 24. Now, we, uh, we have just left um, a bunch of weeks in the Ten Commandments. We spent a number of weeks looking at each of the commandments or uh, categories of the commandments. And so today, we're starting a series called Shadows. Shadows. And it's seeing Christ in the Old Testament or looking at Jesus in the book of Exodus. And, and so one of the things that I want to just lay before you in a big way today is this idea of um, the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament are um, entirely uh, accurate. They are it's so deeply connected that many of us will say, well, I like reading Jesus' words. I like reading all of the things about Christ, but uh, I like reading the Gospels. But the Old Testament is just kind of confusing to me. And what I want you to understand today uh, in the book of Exodus is the connection between the Old Testament and Jesus. That, that the Christians, as we call ourselves, and the Jews are so similar. And that when Jesus came into the world, Jesus did not come to start a new religion that we would now call Christianity. But rather, Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah and the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament that we might see him and become by faith the people of Israel. Are you with me, church? And so, a couple things that I want to do before I get to Exodus 24 is I want to share with you just a few verses out of Romans and Luke just to kind of bring this together so that we, when, we, when we go backward, you'll understand that I'm not um, drawing... Uh, these, these big generalities, or I'm not making leaps and bounds, but I'm trying to connect the dots for us like Jesus did. So let's look at Romans 9 and talk about Israel for just a second. They are Israelites, and he's talking about the people of Israel, and to them belong the adoption. To who? Israel. To, to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, which we're going to talk about today. And the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to their flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. To who belong, to whom belongs Jesus? To the Jews. To the Jews. And then in Luke chapter 24, now imagine with me, Jesus has died, he was buried, and on the third day rose again. There's a story in Luke chapter 24 about people walking down the road on the way to Emmaus, and this strange yet familiar figure shows up, and this is what he says. He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them all the, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they were going along. Jesus, starting with Moses, opens up the scriptures to them and shows them Christ in the Old Testament. And then Jesus, um, Jesus disappears from them in an instant over dinner. And after he disappears for them, they recognize that it was Jesus himself. And they said, did not our hearts burn when he was talking with us? And then in Luke chapter 24, toward the end of the book of Luke, this is what Jesus said to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. In other words, the point that I'm trying to kind of show you today is in the Old Testament, we see lots of shadows, shadows of Christ. Now recognize that a shadow is not the reality. A shadow is not. We see shadows of mountains, of trees, of houses, of our steeple here at church. We see shadows of a lot of different kinds, but the shadow is not the substance. And Christ comes and he reveals himself as the substance of every one of the Old Testament shadows. And those shadows should be so encouraging to us. So when you read the Old Testament, what are you looking for? More specifically, who are you looking for found in the pages of Scripture? And his name is Jesus. Every story whispers his name. Every one of them is pointing forward to the one who would fulfill all of those things. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to look at the idea of shadows in the book of Exodus, specifically in chapters 24 and 25. So let's look now at Exodus chapter 24, and we'll read 1 through 11 together. It says, Then he, that's God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and, the, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And now if you've ever read any any past Exodus chapter 24, you kind of chuckle because it doesn't take much past 24 to see that go awry. Verse 4, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses, verse 6, took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Again, shuckle. Verse 8, 
And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the, cov- or the blood of the covenant. Does that sound familiar at all? The blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Verse 9. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. Now just put on your holy imagination for a moment and just put yourself in their shoes and listen to the glory found in the next couple verses. Verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So we're going to dive in here. I want to just kind of tell you the story. All right. So remember, Exodus chapter 19 and 20, they, the people of Israel have come out of Egypt. They are now uh, through the Red Sea. God has provided for them miraculously in a number of different ways. Manna from heaven, water from the rock, bread or uh, quail that just landed on the ground knee deep all around. And they just had to walk outside and pick it up every day. I mean, God is providing miraculously, defeating enemies. He is protecting his people God's pillar of cloud is there in the pillar of fire, have now descended on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he's brought his people there. The mountain itself is shaking, trembling, um, there's thunder and lightning, and the people of God have been warned, don't come too close to the mountain. Because if you come too close, God is fully there in all of his holiness, and you're unholy. If you come too close to the mountain, he might just kill you. Because the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity cannot be in close proximity. And so he warns them, don't come too near. Consecrate yourselves. Prepare your hearts because the Lord's coming down. The Lord shows up. The Lord gives them the Ten Commandments. Gives them the Ten Commandments. And then a number of laws found in chapter 21, 22, and 23. He gives them all these righteous rules or just decrees. He gives them to them. And now this is where we come to in 24, where God invites Moses, Aaron, Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel to come up to the mountain to worship. Now remember, he put boundaries around the mountain, but allows these to come inside the boundaries where God is. Can you just imagine what an incredible moment that would be? That the God who has created the heaven and the earth, the one who is sovereign and omnipotent, the one who has shown you the plagues of Israel, the one who has provided for you so miraculously, your Redeemer has come down on the mountain and He invites you up to worship. Can you imagine that? You should be able to. This is the story that we're invited into. And now he says, but God says to Moses, you alone come up. And then in verse 3 and 4, Moses came and he reported to the people of Israel all the contents of the law from Exodus 20 to Exodus 23. He told them in all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and he wrote them down for the people. Now these words that he recalled to them, he kind of recapitulated them, uh, those words for them, they're called the, the law or the Sinai covenant. And in verse 3, this is what it says. All the words that the Lord has spoken, 
we will do. Now, here's the thing. We see in this passage a covenant. A covenant is not unfamiliar to us. We have covenants in our day and time um, when we buy a house. If you're ever going to buy a house, you might have to sign a contract. And that is a covenant. That is a covenant that you sign. We're, we're pretty familiar to covenants. But in covenants, as we think about covenants, a covenant is simply an agreement between two or more parties. And there is an agreement between the two parties about who will do what and, and in this agreement. So what's your part and what's your part? Each, each person in the party has a covenant. So in the covenant of I, have a, uh, uh, I signed a contract on my house, they told me, can you believe the audacity that I have to pay on my house every month if I would like to keep it? That's a covenant. I do my part and they do their part. If I do not do my part, they cease to do their part. And my house becomes their house. Okay, And so this is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant before God. Where two people are making vows and a covenant before God for one another. And that's why we say, I'll love you and care for you, cherish you in sickness and health, richer or poorer, um, till death do us part. There's a covenant that takes place in marriage. There are covenants in a lot of different uh, other areas of life. But in this covenant, it's based on a promise that God gave to them in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. Now, I've preached through this, so I'm not going to spend much time on it, but uh, let's look at Exodus 19. This is what it says. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. That covenant's the law. If you'll keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Now, isn't that just a beautiful thought? That the people of God are his treasured possession. For all the earth is mine. Verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So your part is to keep my covenant. That You keep the law. And if you will keep the law, then you'll be my treasured possession um, among all the peoples. You'll be a kingdom of priests to me, and you'll be a holy nation to me. And it goes on to talk about that. He will be our God, and we will be His people. What an incredible promise that God made. But for the people of Israel to receive the blessing of the covenant, they had a part, didn't they? They had to keep the law. They had to keep the law. They had to keep the covenant. See, in, in most covenants, most covenants are conditional if, then. That's what a condition is. Have you ever made a conditional covenant with your child? Does that sound familiar? If you'll do, then I will. Have you ever made that? That's a covenant. We do that all the time. Now, covenants are conditional. It means they have two sides. And if you will do this, then I will do this. And if you fail to do this, then, then here are the consequences of failing to do that. Now, here's the problem with the old covenant, the covenant of the law. Um, the New Testament actually calls the covenant of the law a curse, the curse of the law. Now, here's why. Two reasons. Here's why. If your salvation was dependent on your efforts and dependent on your behavior, when have you done enough 
to have certainty that you have earned your own salvation. Do you hear that? Do you feel that? Just imagine that your going to heaven or hell was dependent on you and your good works. That's, that's a problem, isn't it? When would you know that you have done enough? When would you know that you had earned your way? That your way was signed, sealed, delivered? When would you know? Answer, you wouldn't. Not until you stood before God and God would say, I've weighed your deeds on a scale, if that's how he worked, which he does not. I've weighed your deeds on a scale and your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. And that would be the only time that you would know for certain is when he either gave you entrance into eternal life or damned you into eternal suffering. And that would be the only time you would know. That would be the only time you'd ever be able to have assurance of salvation. But the other part of that is you can never do enough. You can never do enough. Why? Because the goal of holiness is not to be holier than your opponent. To be better in behavior than the person over here. That's not the goal of the law. The goal of the law, the goal of this covenant, is to attain perfection. And if you want to know how you're doing, ask your spouse. Right? We fall short of perfection. We can't do it. Jesus even says, if you want to go to heaven. If you want to inherit the kingdom, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And they were pretty righteous. The problem with this covenant is in this covenant, it was based on the all that he says to do, we will do. We'll do it. Did you hear that? Two times in this passage, they say... Uh, to Moses in response to all of the law, all that he says, we'll do it. Now, just imagine the Ten Commandments. If you were to go through your day trying to keep the Ten Commandments, not just the letter of the law, but the heart behind them. Remember, we spent a lot of time talking about that thou shalt not murder is not just, I didn't kill anybody today, but it's hate in my heart. It's speaking ill words of brothers or sisters. So this idea of, um, of murder is so much deeper than just not taking somebody's life. In some days, that's even challenging. I got real close. Have <laughs> you ever been there? See, if we go through one day just trying to keep the Ten Commandments, I don't know about you, but Pastor Ryan fails every day. And there's only ten of them, for goodness sakes. But every day, something takes a place above God. Every day, there's something that guides my decision-making more than God, which is idolatry. Every day, I covet, and which is idolatry. Every day, I, 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 my eyes or my words sin against a holy God. Every day, I fall short of His glorious commands. Every day, 
I do not honor his name as holy in all my ways every day. And that's only ten commandments. So the problem is, they said, we will do it, but could they do it? Can you do it? See, part of salvation, the first and hardest part of salvation is a simple admission that I can't do it. And that is the opposite of what we've been taught in America. You can do it. You can do whatever you put your mind to. You can, except earn your own salvation. You can do anything you want, except earn your own salvation. There's one impossibility for you, earning your way into heaven. Being righteous enough that God, the holy God, would look down on your life and go, you know what? He's done it. She's done it. They're perfect. There is one unattainable thing in this world. Maybe more. But there's one that we can't do and we cannot earn our own salvation. And the way into the kingdom is by admitting that you can't. That's why Jesus says in the the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. The idea of being spiritually bankrupt. When you recognize that, that your spiritual bank account does not have enough righteousness to cover the cost of salvation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom. The entrance of the kingdom is being as low as you can be, not being as high as you can be. And the prophet Isaiah says, in fact, that the kingdom is closed to the proud, but open to the humble. You want to know why Jesus could so willingly accept the leper and the the one who's sick and the prostitute? Because they knew their need. There were things in their life they knew they couldn't fix. And they came and they sought Jesus to do what only Jesus could do. What a humbling thought. See, in this text, we see the covenant, and the problem with the covenant is that we can't do it. Now look at verses 4 to 6. So they, they, did, they, they received it. They said, we'll do it. And then in chapter 4, Moses wrote down the, all the, the words, and then he built an altar. And he had some other men make sacrifices. Um, and then they took the blood of those sacrifices, and they split them into two parts. And with one part of that blood, he took that blood and he threw it up against the altar, which is going to be very symbolic. It was to atone for the sins of those that were here. It was to appease the wrath of God. He threw it against the altar. Then in verse 7 and 8, let's read together. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In in other words, in making this vow to God to keep the covenant of the law by being obedient to all of the laws of God all of the time, and when the covenant was made between God and the people of Israel, or the elders of Israel, Moses took the other part of the blood and looked down at uh, uh, 
uh, verse 8, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. So he took one and he threw it up against the altar. He took the other half of the blood and he threw it on the people. That they were sprinkled by and covered by the blood of the sacrifice. See, Moses was giving the people a sign of the covenant. That the covenant has now been ratified. That it's in effect. And the, what, what sealed the deal was the blood of the sacrifice. What made the covenant ratified or, or come into uh, fruition is blood. It's a sign and a seal of the covenant. Then in verse 9, verse 9, we see Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders, they went up on the mountain and look at what verse 10 says. Verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. Now just realize that this is what people have been longing for since the days of Adam and Eve. To look upon God. Now many people in the book of Genesis and even in Exodus had seen some form of God, but none of them have beheld the glory of God. None of them. I mean, Jacob wrestled with this stranger in the evening. Abraham in chapter 8, Genesis 18, had three visitors in the middle of the day who came to him, and it was the triune God, but in human form. Um, but nobody had seen God like this since the garden. See, the fall separated us from God. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, Your sins have separated you from God. That's what our sins have done. Our sins have caused separation. And this is what it says, They saw God the God of Israel, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Have you read the book of Revelation and you've heard the description of heaven? That is just like what John saw. What an incredible thought. And then in verse 11, it gets even more incredible. And, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. That's good. Why? Because God's holy, righteous, just hand should have fallen on all of those people. Why? Because they didn't deserve to be in his presence. It should have. But it didn't. How is it possible that sinful humanity look upon the holiness of God, the glory of God, face to face and live? How is that possible? Because there was a sacrifice made. That the blood of an animal was spilt so that the blood of a human wouldn't have to be. So that God's wrath would be poured out on the animal, on the sacrifice, instead of the people who deserved it. There was a substitute there. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. And it says they beheld God and ate and drank. Can you imagine having a meal in the very presence of God? I mean, think about the wonder of that. So, let me just show you three shadows in this text. And I'm going to make them quick. Three shadows that you're going to see. Number one is, is that Jesus is the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. Jesus is the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. Here's what I mean. 
In the Old Testament, there was a covenant, and it was made, and it was ratified in blood. But the problem with the covenant was the weakness of flesh. Sinful humanity could never keep their side of the covenant. Therefore, if we lived under that covenant, we would still deserve the punishment of that covenant. But God, in His mercy, says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, describes the new covenant. Let's look at it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Do you feel the way to that? Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this covenant, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. What's the difference between the first covenant and the second covenant? First covenant, we will do it. Second covenant, I will do it. The old covenant was based on our efforts. That we would keep the covenant. The new covenant is that God will do it, and it will not be dependent On our behavior. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. How will we all know him? Listen. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. See, the problem with the first covenant is it required a sacrifice. And the sin sacrifice would be slain every year. And every year there'd have to be a new sacrifice. Every year I go to Jerusalem to worship on the Day of Atonement. I come with a lamb in tow. I bring a lamb. I bring an ox. I bring a turtle dove. I bring something to sacrifice for my sin. And every year there's a remembrance for sin. But in the new covenant, it's different In the new covenant, Jesus is the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. What do I mean by that? Look at Romans 8, 1 through 4. See, under the Old Testament, Old Covenant, we stood condemned, but Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in, in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How? For God has done. Listen, look at it. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God did what the law couldn't do. How? By sending His own Son... In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, Jesus is the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. So when he makes the new covenant, he knows that he will fulfill both sides of the covenant. So in the first covenant, the old covenant, the covenant at Sinai, there was, we had to keep the law, and be, if we kept the law, then God would give us the blessings of that covenant. The problem is we couldn't keep the law. In the new covenant, 
Jesus comes and makes the covenant, and then on our behalf, He keeps every one of the righteous rules that we ought to keep but can't. He does every part of the law that we are created to keep but couldn't. He does everything in our place. He fulfills the righteous requirement of the law for us. Isn't that good news? So it's not simply that Jesus died for me, but before he died for you, he lives sinlessly for you. And so when Christ or God looks at you, he says about you, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Why? Because Christ kept the righteous requirements of the law for you. Isn't that good news? In other words, we don't need to labor for our salvation, but our labor to keep the law is from our salvation. So the the gospel, the good news of Jesus says that you don't have to earn it. God did it. And because God did it, you can now work from that salvation and you have inside of you the power of God working to bring it about. So now he doesn't leave you alone to say, I hope you do good and you're keeping those Ten Commandments. Because it hinges, the, the blessings of God hinge on that. But he says, no, I've kept all of the law in your place. I've died for your sin. And now because of that, I'm coming to live in you and I will live out the law through you. Isn't that good news? See, Jesus is the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. He sure is. Secondly, he's the sacrifice that takes away man's sin and appeases God's wrath. How could they behold God and not die? The same way we can behold God and not die. It's that that God's wrath be poured out on a substitute. And the substitute's not an animal. Substitute's not a lamb or a ram or an ox or a turtle dove, the substitute was the Lamb of God. His name is Jesus Christ. And He was sacrificed once for all time. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Isn't that good news? Here, listen to me, church family. The glory of the gospel is not that you get your sins forgiven and that you get out of hell free. The glory of the gospel is that you get God. That now, because of what Jesus has done, you get to behold the face of God without dying. That's good news. It's good news. You get God. When? Forever. You know, the, the heaven is not about all the stuff. I can't wait to see Uncle Joe and Aunt Sue. That's not heaven. Heaven is God. The glory of heaven is you're going to get to heaven and you're going to be welcomed in and ushered into the very presence of God that you've been longing for ever since you were born. That's the glory of heaven. Well, when I get to heaven, I got a lot of questions. You, Lucy, you got some explaining to do. No. You're going to behold God. And all the other things are going to become meaningless. 
compared to him. He died to bring you to God. He is the sacrifice whose blood has cleansed you. Whose blood has appeased God's wrath on your behalf. God is angry at sin. Well, that sounds really unloving. He's angry at sin because of his love. It's because of his love for his creation that he gets angry at the sin that ruined his creation. You get angry at something because you love something so ferociously. God's wrath stems from God's love. His holiness, His goodness. And God was full of wrath for your sins and mine. But Jesus died and the full force of God's wrath was poured out on the Son. He was bruised. He was broken. He was forsaken so that you wouldn't have to be. His blood was spilt so that yours wouldn't have to be. He was separated from God so that you wouldn't have to be. Praise the Lamb. Last, Jesus offers us at a place at God's table. Jesus offers us a place at God's table. See, they went up the mountain and they ate with God. They beheld Him and they ate and drank. Do you know the tone of a feast? Now, take out some of the family struggles, because I know every family has struggles. But take all those out of the picture and imagine Thanksgiving without the drama. We all have that crazy uncle that nobody's talking about, you know. Maybe you are that crazy uncle, that's okay, well pray for you. When you're at a feast, there is a joy in a feast. Can you imagine? And that's with broken, sinful people. (laughs) Can you imagine a feast in the presence of God when there's no sin? That's what they got on the mountain. They came into the very presence of a holy God and they looked upon Him and they ate and they drank. Can you imagine the overwhelming joy in that? Let me just tell you, there's a a feast being prepared. There's a shadow of it in the Gospels. When Jesus sits around the table with his disciples and they begin to drink the cups of wine that are the the wine of the Passover. And he says, I won't drink this cup again till I drink it with you in, in heaven. Revelation chapter 19 reminds us that there is a feast coming. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus offers you a place at the table. It's not because you're good. It's not because you're well behaved. That you're wearing the, the proper clothing. It's because you've been washed. In the blood of Jesus. 
And there's coming a day. Isaiah chapter 25 tells us that there's coming a day when we'll feast on the mountain. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow and aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on that mountain the covering that's cast over all the peoples, the veil that's spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord... The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And you, brother or sister, if you're in Christ, you have a seat at the table. And if you're not, Jesus is offering you one today. So as we look at the covenant that God confirmed with the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 20, be reminded that you can't do it. So Jesus did. And if you'll trust in Jesus today. Oh, his righteousness in your account, your sin into his. And you will have then a table, a spot at the table in the very presence of God. At the marriage supper of the lamb. Would you stand with me? This is a time of invitation and maybe you're in the room today and your eternal security is dependent on the things that you've done. You've been trying to earn your way into heaven. And today I want you to hear from God's word say that you can't do it. And maybe you today need to trust that Jesus did it for you. Trust that he's the covenant maker and the covenant keeper trust that his blood was shed as the substitutionary sacrifice that he died for your sins and washed you with his blood trust him today and maybe you're in here today and you've just walked away from grace and hebrews 12 hebrews 13 reminds us that it's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace And strengthen your heart again. Remind your your soul of the grace of God. Return to Him. And work from your salvation. Not for it. Maybe you're here today and your next step is joining a church family. And we would love to have you come and take your next steps of church membership right here at Seneca Baptist. You can do all of those things. The altar is open for you. If you'd like prayer, some pastors will be available to you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that that your word would cut us and prick our hearts and help us to love you more. That your word would make us more like your son. And because of your gospel, it would go swiftly to the heart, to the lips and come into our conversations. Lord, now in this holy moment, speak and change lives in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As we sing, you can.